John asked yesterday what my title was, and, and my titles on Saturdays are always lackluster. It was uh, knowing more of God. But thank goodness for showers on Sunday morning, because that's when my inspirations usually come. And so I have revised my title, Moses from Draft Dodger to Commander-in-Chief. And that is really what we see in the book of Exodus. If you read the book of Exodus as it's meant to be read, and I mean by that, read it as a book, then what you will do is you will see the marked contrast between Moses in chapters 3 and 4, where God is is calling Moses to duty, drafting him, if you would. And Exodus 32 through 34 where now Moses is really uh, pursuing after God in an aggressive sort of way. So note the contrast. In chapters 3 and 4, Moses is in retreat, and I might add, with God in hot pursuit, right? Moses is in retreat. How do I get out of this calling? Uh, And it is God who is in advance. In chapters 32 through 34, it is Moses who is in a full offensive. Now Moses is leading the charge, not going backwards, but forwards. When you look at chapters 3 and 4, Moses is reluctant, is he not? That may even be putting it mildly. He is reluctant. He does not want that job. Not me. What would I say? They won't believe me. He goes on and on until God gets mad at him in chapter 4 for making all the excuses. He is definitely in retreat. Now he's on the offensive. He's reluctant. Now he is in hot pursuit. And here's what's interesting. While Moses appears to be reluctant in chapters 3 and 4, It's God who appears to be reluctant in chapters 32 through 34, is it not? It's God hot on the heels of Moses to take on the task. And in 32 through 34, it's Moses hot on the heels of God, beseeching God to act in a way that will bring about the forgiveness of sins of this people, Israel. So it is a remarkable change And so I think the question that ought to be in our minds is, what happened to Moses, right? What happened to Moses between chapters 3 and 4 and chapter 32? Well, let's just review a little bit the the setting of those things that comes before Exodus chapter 32. You remember the story of the birth of Moses and, in a sense, his unique preparation because he was born into the household of Pharaoh. Perhaps he was even destined to be the Pharaoh. But because of the sequence of events, he fled from Egypt and uh, did not return until God had to speak to him uh, in a very dramatic way to get him there. And then God says to him in that call, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. I I emphasize that because that surely comes into play in chapters 32 through 34. Moses is going to hold God to his promise 
that he will be with him in this venture of leading his people into the promised land. So Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh. They present God's demand, which is, let my people go that they may serve me. And you remember, repeatedly Pharaoh says, no way. And the response to that is the ten plagues, where God demonstrates his supremacy and his sovereignty over all the gods of Egypt. And the final one, of course, is the uh, the death of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, at which time they are expelled from the land of Egypt. But you remember that uh, Pharaoh has second thoughts, sends out his army, and it is there in the Red Sea that the Israelites find their escape and Pharaoh's army finds its its demise. And then you have the celebration in Exodus chapter 15 where God is praised for the great act of deliverance that he has given with a with a for, forward look of this is the way the nations are going to hear about us. They're going to be scared to death when we come. God is going to give us this land to which we are headed. Well, that enthusiasm doesn't last too long, but you remember God gives them manna in chapter 16, and then he gives them the law in chapter 20. And one of the things about the law that is very significant is that he makes very clear there is to be no idol worship. So in Exodus chapter 20, he says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. No idols. The ink is not even dry, if, if I can use that metaphor, because the stone hasn't been cut yet. It's in the process, as God saying to Moses, you ought to better get down there and take care of this bunch of people. And you remember, Moses demolishes the first set of tablets, has to go for a rewrite as he carries those back up the mountain. But... The, the, literally, the ink is not dry on, on the commandments that God has given to Israel, and they've already broken the worst, the, the most severe uh, of those offenses they've done. And, and would you not say that you could say at this point, this does not bode well? You know, the, the beauty of this is that we come to Romans chapter 3, and Paul tells us that the law was never given so that men might earn their righteousness. That's not a revelation that comes to us in Romans 3. It's a revelation that comes to us in Exodus 32. They can't keep the law. And now they are in mortal danger. The question at hand is whether God will even allow them to exist on the face of the earth. Things are not looking good for the nation Israel. Oh, one more kicker in all of this, which I find very fascinating. Exodus chapter 24. Remember, God has 70 of the leaders, the nobility of, of, of the Israelites. He has them with, with Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and I guess Joshua was in that mix too. 
And it says there they, they ate and they drank in the presence of God. Listen to this. Verse 9 of Exodus 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. Isn't it amazing that here is Aaron seeing this vision, I guess you would say, of the great and holy God. And, and days later, he's making some crummy golden calf. And I say that because Aaron was no metal worker. You know my story on that. But what, what could a, what could a shepherd do? I mean, when he says, I just put the gold, threw it in the fire, and it came out like that. That's probably not far from the truth. I don't think it was the world's most beautiful calf. But the point is, he has seen God. And he is already willing to make an image that is a horrible distortion of that God. And 70 of the leaders of the people see him too. So when you see this rebellion in Exodus 32, you're saying, what happened? To this group of people who saw God, who were in His presence. And they ate and they drank. And what are they doing now? Eating, drinking, and rising up to play. In other words, a heathen worship ritual in place of the worship of God. It is amazing. And, and, while that's going on, the smoke is still billowing from Mount Sinai as an evidence of His holiness. But they don't have a leader that they can see. They don't have someone they can manipulate. And they would much rather be in control, so they they want some God they can take with them that will do their bidding for them. I think you can see that God is not pleased with Israel And consequently, he says to Moses, you better get on down to your people who you led because uh, they're in a lot of trouble. So Moses goes down. Well, before he goes down, there's a little debate. You remember that goes on? God says to him this. Moses, I've got a new deal. This isn't a political new deal of years ago, but he's got a new deal. I'm going to wipe this nasty bunch out. And I'm going to start all over, and you are the new Abraham. I'm going to make a whole new nation out of you. We'll just wipe the slate clean. That's not a bad offer. It's not a bad promotion, would you say, for Moses? Not a bad thing at all. And it's Moses now who approaches God with God's point of view. Now, I don't think that God really changed his mind. I think what you see in the end is God persisted at what he had purposed and promised to do. But from a human point of view, I suppose Moses went home to his wife that night and says, whew, was that close. God almost resigned. And I had to talk him out of it. But what he says is, you're God, you made a promise. You made a covenant with Abraham, and you said you will bring this people into this land And all of the enemies of Israel are watching to see if you can pull it off. 
If you wipe out this nation, it is contrary to your glory, it is contrary to your promise, it is contrary to your character. Well, obviously, that's what Moses should have said, and he did. So God now relents. I don't like the word changed his mind. New ASB, I don't know why they got that in their head. But most every other translation will say God relented. He didn't change his mind, but he did cease from this plan of termination that was uh, that was very near. So the question that goes on now is, so what's next? Here is this sinful, motley crowd to whom God has made promises. How is this thing going to work out? They're on their way. How can God, who is holy and righteous, dwell in the midst of a sinful people? So the issue at hand now is, God has spared their life, but will God go with them into this promised land? And you know at the outset, what God says to Moses is, I'm not going. (laughs) I'll send my angel, but I'm not going. And Moses pleads with God, and you remember the result is God says, all right, I'll go with you, singular. And ultimately, he says he will go with the nation, plural. But I want to make some observations about our text that I think are really fascinating. At the beginning of chapter 32, the question is Israel's existence. Will they even survive? But by the time you reach uh, the end of chapter 33 and the early verses of chapter 34, you now find that God is indeed going to go with his people. And the covenant, which had been shattered, so to speak, by Moses, is reinstituted as we see in in chapter uh, 34. But at the end of all this, Moses comes out highly exalted. It's very clear that Moses is their only hope. Uh, One of the scenes that I love is in chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, that account of the tent of meeting. Now, God had given instructions for the tent of meeting, and that was taking place in chapters 25 and following uh, while the Israelites were busy making idols. But... God is saying, here's how the the tabernacle ought to be constructed, and there was this tent of meeting. Well, none of that had been done yet. But Moses sets up his tent outside the camp. And you remember, the writer to the Hebrews picks up that imagery. So in one sense, to fellowship with God, God is different and distinct from this sinful bunch. They have to go outside the camp. Moses would go to the tent... And the glory of God would come down. The Shekinah glory would come down to the entrance of the tent. And everybody who was interested in worshiping God would stand and look on to that tent. And they would worship God. Moses was their only hope. It seems to me that's just crystal clear. Moses is their only hope. He is the one who is petitioning for their survival. He is the one who continues to petition God for his grace in their lives. So you got the issue, will God go with them? The root cause, how can a holy God dwell amongst the sinful people? Here's what's interesting. Nowhere in chapters 32 through 34 is Moses ever at risk. Moses is not in danger and his petitions are not somehow save my skin. 
Israel's in danger, yes. Moses, no. Moses is secure with God. He has God's favor. But you'll notice that while God makes promises, he starts by making a promise to Moses, singular. And he says, I will do this. And Moses is unwilling to accept that offer solo. So Moses continues to press God. And the thing that's really caught my attention in this text is all the way through chapters 32 through 34, there is this interaction between God and Moses. And in effect, Moses makes a petition. And you might say God counters with his offer. And and the offer is always to Moses' benefit. But Moses accepts the offer and presses on. Now, i got to tell you, this is a, it, it looks like negotiation. Think about this in contrast to Abraham, who is petitioning God and interceding with God for saving those innocent people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember? He starts out at 50, right? If there were 50 righteous people, you wouldn't destroy this city, would you? Nope. Well, it gets all the way down to 10, you remember? And all the way, uh, Abraham is negotiating downward. And the reality is there aren't 10, and the negotiations fail, and the city's wiped out. With Moses, it's exactly the opposite. God says, I will give you this. And Moses comes back and says, no, I want more. And here's the kicker. The basis for the more is, A, his standing with God. If I have found favor in your sight, and God says, he has, if you have known me by name, and he has, then I ask that you do this. And what he does is he will pick upon that dimension of God's character that God has just revealed And what he'll say is, well, if this is the kind of God that you are, then you ought to give more. And so every negotiation, I really don't like that term, but I'm not quite sure. Every transaction that takes place, Moses ups the ante from don't kill them in chapter 32 to go with them and forgive them for their iniquities in chapter 33 and 34. He continues to up the ante. Now, this is, is a Moses that used to be a guy who was going AWOL with God. And now, Moses is in God's face, so to speak, and, and I'm, there's a certain metaphorical thing and not. You remember in, in the, in the uh, tent of meeting, it said, God spoke to Moses, as it were, face to face. It was as close, as personal an interaction as there could be. And Moses is pressing God for more. That just amazes me that a man who we saw in chapters 3 and 4 is so shy and retiring and trying to find the back door has now somehow gotten a hold of God. He's almost like Jacob, remember, in wrestling with the angel? And he's not going to let go until he gets the blessing of God. Not just for himself, but for the people. So there is a sense in which when Moses is petitioning God, he is petitioning God, let's say, on an individual basis. 
So he says in chapter 33, let me see your ways that I may know you and find favor in your sight. In other words, let me know more about you so that I can live consistently with who you are and therefore be pleasing to you. There's a certain personal dimension to that. And I think there's another one. Uh, And uh, Tom uh, told me Wednesday, be sure you tell him this. In effect, Moses is saying, if I'm going to go, I want more of God. If I'm going to go on this trip with this bunch of folks, then I want more of God to be able to go. Think about what lay ahead for him. If I were Moses, I'd settle for the tent of meeting being there forever. Why move? The question is, once you pull up stakes from the tent and move on, where is the interaction now going to be between God and Moses or between God and his people? So here is is, uh, is Moses seeking something for himself. It is true but never in isolation from the good of the people. So that what he seeks for himself, he seeks for the good of of the people of Israel. Listen to this. Exodus 33, verse 13. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Okay, you can't stop there. Because he says, consider too that this nation is your people. So as the negotiations go on, you remember God says to Moses, all right, I'm going with you. My presence will be with you. And and Moses says, no, no, that isn't enough. If, If you're to be identified with this people and the nations are to glorify you as this people is, then it must be evident that you are with them as well as with me. And that's where God then says, or Moses then says, okay, uh, God says, I'm going to do that. And Moses then immediately responds and says, let me see your glory. Moving late into chapter 33. Remember God says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass by and you'll see in effect of my hinder parts. You'll see some of me, not all of me, because no one can see God fully in that, in that mode. And so here you have God promising to come to him and in 34, in those verses that we read, he does come and manifests all his goodness. And all of his goodness is his attributes. God manifests his goodness by manifesting his character to uh, Moses. Now, here's, here's the thing I've missed until just lately. In fact, when I was preparing for this message. I thought the grand finale was when God revealed what he did in 34, 6, and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses makes haste to bow, but he presses again. You see that? He now presses, and what he's saying is, Lord, I'm not just asking for you to be with this people. 
as you are with me. I'm asking you to be with this obstinate, sinful people in a way that expresses what you have just said. He has just said, as I read these words, I am gracious and compassionate. My great joy is to save men who are sinners. I love forgiving iniquity. Now, you're going to say, well, what about that other part? Well, that too. He never sets aside his righteousness, and we'll talk about that in terms of how this represents the gospel in a minute. But what I see here is Moses once again follows up with God's self-revelation, and he says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as thine own possession. That's the only solution. The solution is not that the people of Israel are going to suddenly get on a 12-step program and get righteous. They'll never do it. Romans 3 says nobody ever has, except Jesus. So what he's saying is, I want you to go with us. I'm asking you to go with us as sinners. And I'm claiming the fact that you forgive sins. See what I'm saying? Every time God reveals something about Himself to Moses, Moses ups the ante. And so what you see then is the uh, the redoing of the, uh, the, the tablets, in a sense, the repetition of the covenant. But here's how I see it as different. The covenant that is renewed that God talks about here in Exodus 34.10 and following comes after the revelation that God forgives sin. In other words, following the law and doing righteousness is the result of God forgiving sin. It's not the cause of God being with His people. It's the result of God being with His people. And so this is the effect. And God expects His people now to behave in this way because of who He is and because of how He responds to His people. That to me is amazing. Another thing that I just marvel at is I look at this account with Moses pressing hard upon God is there's no anger on God's part. Now, back in Exodus chapter 4, when uh, Moses is trying to find his release papers from the draft, God gets mad. He's tired of Moses making excuses for why he shouldn't do what God's called him to do. But look at this. I think if you read between the lines, you see God delights in the interaction that he has with Moses. He loves to have Moses press him for more. And it's more from God, yes, but it's more of God. Do you see that? Moses keeps moving in. Have you ever had a pet like that? <laughs> a pet that some pets they want to keep their distance and other pets they just keep moseying over. There are some pets that they just keep, you know, kind of moving closer and closer to you. And some grandkids do that too, by the way. And, and, uh, that's what Moses is doing to God. And God loves it. There is no frustration, no anger. God loves to be pursued as he is by Moses. And he loves to answer. 
his requests. As I pointed out, no emphasis here on law keeping. <laughs> Ink wasn't dry on the paper or parchment, whatever it was Moses had written the rough draft on. Remember, before it was put in stone. It's obvious law keeping is not going to merit Israel being close to God. It's only going to be the result of God drawing close to his people through forgiveness and salvation. So what should we learn? Well, I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. What happened to Moses? <laughs> Don't you find yourself saying that if you read through the whole book and you see Moses in chapter 3 and 4? you got to say to Moses, you want to take him aside and say, what happened to you? I saw you going around looking for those release papers, trying to figure out how to go AWOL from God, and now you're badgering God. What happened? Well, I would suggest some things. One is, I really want to stress the fact that Moses always wanted more. There were a number of occasions in Moses' life and in his dealings with God where it would have been very tempting, let's say if I were in Moses' sandals, it would have been very tempting for me to say, I'll take it. Moses, you just, all he had to do was leave God alone. That's what God says in chapter 32. He says, leave me alone and I'll do this. Moses doesn't have to do anything but go to Starbucks and have a cup of coffee. And God will clean up that nation and now he's number one. What an incredible thing that Moses persists in wanting more all the way through these interactions. I count at least eight of them. Eight times, in effect, Moses says, not enough. And not only not enough for him, but not enough for God's people. That's amazing to me. I have to say to you, I think it's a sad thing in America today that I'm not sure that most Christians want more of God. I think we want more from God. Watch your television. And they'll tell you all kinds of gimmicks for the way you can get God to produce stuff. But here it's wanting more of, of God. In fact, what I would say is this. I think the church of our Lord Jesus is filled with draft dodgers. People who are working hard to find ways not to do what God has called them to do. And I think there's a way in which we have allowed, and I could say we now because i got gray hair and I'm an old coot. We who are older in the faith are sort of in retirement mode. And we're saying to ourselves, we've done our bidding, we've done our work, and now it's just, you know, just kind of ease our way off toward the grave because we've we've done what we need to. That is not what the Scriptures speak of. And... I find it interesting because I did not sit down and coordinate with with uh, uh, Paul or I didn't coordinate with Don Glenn, but I was going to 2 Corinthians 3, by the way. I knew some of you were looking saying, where is he reading from? 2 Corinthians 3. And there he says, if the, if the glory that Moses saw and was pursuing was a glory that fades, the glory that we have in the face of Christ is greater and non-fading. Right? So, 
it isn't as though we look back at Moses and say, well, yeah, he had a better deal going. He didn't. And Paul is saying then in Philippians 3, yes, press on. When he says forgetting the things that are past, he doesn't mean forget the mistakes so much as he means forget the successes. Don't rest on your laurels. Press on. Want more. And as a result, I think you could say, do more for the people of God. So what happened to Moses? Well, he witnessed God's power, starting at the Exodus, right? He saw God working in many ways. He experienced God's presence. Got a little introduction to the bush, right? And then it went on from there. To here he is at the tent of meeting, and, and after this event, the, the passage that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 3 and Don was referring to, it's after Exodus 33 and early 34, and that's where he goes up on the mountain and, and his battery, so to speak, his face battery is charged, and then it gets dimmer and dimmer. That's the kind of thing that happened. It, it says then, when Moses went before God, That was what took place. This glory radiated itself on him. And Paul says, that's nothing compared to the glory that we have. And yet we're not asking for more. We're opting out, as it were, draft dodgers, I fear. He experienced God's presence. He embraced God's character. Notice the goodness of God. Actually, the way God says it, All my goodness will pass before you. If you were to sum that up, what would you say God's goodness was? I would say it is his attributes. It is who God is. And here's the beauty. When Moses beseeches God, he beseeches him in the light of who God is. That is, what is his character? What is his mission? What is his delight? And when he prays, he prays consistently within that which is the nature of God. What do you think his chances of answered prayer are compared to ours? You know, the grocery list prayers. The reality is, when he is one that God knows by name, that God personally embraces, and God now discloses his character Moses prays and asks for more based upon who he knows God to be. And that's based upon who God has revealed himself to be. Here's the key to answered prayer. Start praying in accordance with God's character. Here's the key to knowing God's will. Start pursuing that which you know brings pleasure to God. I don't think it's as big a mystery as we say it is. The problem is we'd rather brush those things aside and go for what we want on our grocery list. Moses didn't just seek his own good. He never divorced his own blessing from blessing for the people. It was never self-serving. I fear sometimes in the church today that Christians are asking for growth, they're asking for maturity, they're asking for all kinds of things personally without really saying, God, bless me 
so that I can bless others. By the way, that sounds like the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't it? I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. That ought to happen with Christians. And it certainly was true with Moses. He refused to accept the status quo. Okay, there are many things I could say. I was, but I decided to leave it out. I was going to take uh, some of the attributes of God and spell out how those attributes might shape the way we think and the way we pray. But I'm going to give you a project to think about and consider. Here's the project. We're facing a new year. I have no idea what's going to happen. But I have a fairly good idea that it won't be good. In general terms, would you agree with me? When you read the Olivet Discourse and Jesus says this is what it's going to be like in the last days, you know, nobody's playing happy days are here again. There's going to be difficulty. There are going to be surprises that come our way. I don't know what those are, but I can prepare for those by doing what Moses did, and that is to pursue God and who he is. So that when a circumstance happens, I say to myself, God is sovereign. Whatever is taking place in the world today is under his control. Psalm 2, remember? Here are the kings plotting against how they're going to rebel against God and his Messiah. God's in heaven laughing. Get this, guys. It's laugh. He's in control. That ought to shape my response so that I don't panic. And he's merciful and compassionate. What does that mean? It means he loves to save. So wouldn't you think that a prayer for the salvation of the lost would carry a little weight with a God like that? So what I'm suggesting to you is make this year a year where you focus on God's attributes. And you say to yourself, how should that shape the way in which I look at the future? I read the newspaper, or nowadays, look at the internet. Whatever it is, find the news. So how should I respond to that? I think that we can and should do that. Interestingly, a very good friend of mine, whom most of you know, said to me that early on in his Christian career, he read, he got a book by A.W. Tozier, The Pursuit of God, I think it is, Pursuit of Holiness. And, and, uh, the very first words in that book said, what a man thinks about God is the most important thing to know about him. You believe that? What we think about God is the most important thing you ought to know about me, us. Two books, just among many. Uh, J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Attributes of God. A.W. Tozier, same thing. And there are many other books. What I would suggest to you, and what I'm going to try and do, I'm speaking now with my Bible.org hat on, what my intent is to do is to take an attribute a month and have passages of Scripture that underscore and illustrate that attribute. And then you take that attribute and you sort of read the newspaper, you look at the at the news, and you say, how would God respond to this? You know, it's sort of what would Jesus do, but how, how would God in his nature, how would he respond to this? How would he have me respond to it if I were after his heart? And how should I pray? 
I would suggest to you that no pursuit is more worthy than the pursuit of seeking more of God. And that is the pursuit that Moses took on. And I would challenge you to take on in the coming year. No more of Him. And you learn that from His Word. One last word about the Gospel. This text in, in Exodus 34 where God talks about gracious and compassionate, it's the Gospel. It's the Gospel. How is God going to dwell in the presence of a sinful people? Or in, in our New Testament terms, how are we who are sinners ever going to expect to live in God's presence in heaven? How will that happen? It won't happen by law-keeping. That was clear in Exodus 32. It's very clear in Romans chapter 3. By the keeping of the law, no flesh will be justified. The law shows us how far short we fall from God's standard if we were to live in close proximity to Him. But notice, it's God's compassion. It's His delight and desire to forgive sinners. Is that right? And, and, and that's what He's about. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. What about that justice thing and judgment? In Jesus, He did both. Isn't that what Paul says later in Romans 3? When Christ died on the cross, He died in the sinner's place. He bore the sinner's guilt and punishment. And so the wrath of God is satisfied. It isn't set aside. God doesn't look the other way. Well, maybe next time. God deals with sin by judging it. Those who reject His satisfaction in Jesus, in the punishment He bore, must bear it themselves. But what we see is an early shadowing of the Gospel. And that is why when you get the text like Nehemiah chapter 9 and others, what do they do when the nation's in deep trouble? Do they say to God, we'll try harder? No. They go to these words and they say, God, you are gracious and compassionate. You forgive sins. And God will act according to His nature. That's the good news of the gospel. Okay, I always had to beat on Jonah just once, just lightly beat on Jonah. Jonah is the only one in the Bible who takes these verses as his protest. You remember that? I knew it! I knew it! I won't use the words that he probably did. I knew you were gracious and compassionate and would forgive these people. What's wrong with you? Jonah is out of sync with God. And so what we see in our Lord Jesus, I think, is the living out of the character of God. And that's why you see Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath and the self-righteous Pharisees are saying, oh, you're breaking the law. And Jesus is saying, don't you get it? I love mercy and compassion. So it's the attributes of God lived out in the Lord Jesus that shines in contrast to His enemies. That's the Gospel, my friend. The law will never save. But we have a God who loves to save. And He did so by sending His Son to bear our punishment and to provide the righteousness which He alone can provide.
Father, we pray about this coming year. Would you be with your people? Would you be with us more? May we pursue you hotly like Moses did. May we seek to know your character. May we pray in accordance with who you are. And may we work accordingly and may that give us a perspective that as the surprises of this coming year meet us in the news or in our lives, we will see those things through your eyes because you are the one who is gracious and compassionate and loves to forgive sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.